The following content is explicit. It's Friday, June 29th, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So what we saw in Annapolis, Maryland, is just obviously terrible. It's awful. But I have said often on this show not to look at the motivation of the shooter as the thing to blame in such a tragedy. It is not the strains in culture that prompt a shooting. And right now, could change depending on information. It does not seem that Donald Trump's statements during the campaign and afterwards against the media prompted this shooter. The shooter had deep animus toward the paper before Trump ever came on the scene. The shooter was angry. The shooter was bitter. And yes, he was a Trump supporter, but most of the angry, bitter people are, though not all of them, look at the Steve Scalise shooter. If anyone were, however, to challenge the idea of not blaming the ideology, you know, my general mantra on this, don't blame the ideology that's in the ether, blame the person who's twisting that ideology and grabbing a gun. But if there was any figure that complicates my philosophy, it would be the president because of the stature of the office and, of course, because of this particular president's domination of the discourse, as it were. Why did the shooter shoot? Well, because of those things that shoot because of guns. It's the biggest thing. There are very angry people in Japan. There are no shootings there. There are angry people in England. There are very few shootings there. There are stabbings in England, shootings with an antique gun, an assassination with an antique gun, a single shot, but no mass slaughters. There are angry Australians. Australians took away their guns, pretty much eliminated mass slaughter. So it is guns, first and foremost. It is the derangement and the anger of individuals. So by derangement, I don't just mean insanity, and I'm certainly not getting into if it's sanity or legal insanity in the clinical sense or the legal sense. But it's anger. It's, it's this deep anger all around us that foments and metastasizes. This is, this is a characteristic of our modern age. Again, there are a lot of angry, celibate men. The fact that they kill people has a lot to do with guns, has a lot to do with the horrible, virulent nuttiness of the incel movement. But to be fair about it, there have been black men who are adherents of the Black Lives Matter movement, who have killed cops. There are people who are anti-abortion nuts, who have shot up abortion places. But there was also, as I mentioned, a Bernie Sanders supporter who took his, let us say, passion way too far. So if you want to say, without Donald Trump excoriating the media, maybe we wouldn't have this shooting, I don't know it's true, but if you were to say that, I think to be logically consistent, you'd have to say, if it weren't for the Black Lives Matter movement, there might be a couple more living cops in Dallas and New York City. But I don't look at it like that. I don't think we should look at it or judge it like that. I do think we should judge an ideology, but I, I don't look at it like that. I don't think that we should judge the merits or horribleness of an ideology based on the worst people who claim to be adherents of that ideology. And to some extent, uh, the Bernie Sanders shooter certainly twisted that ideology quite a lot. The anti-abortion shooter in Colorado, I mean, if you read some of their statements online, he didn't really go much further than what they advocate right there in black and white. 
I'm certainly arguing that we do need to use critical judgment when evaluating an ideology. I don't think it's proper to subcontract that judgment out to who's the worst person ever to act in the worst way who claims to be a follower of that ideology. And when it comes to President Trump and his attacks on the media, is it even an ideology? If it's an ideology, it's just maybe authoritarianism. But it is, as far as it goes, an idea. And Donald Trump's demonization of journalists is wrong. It is a morally reprehensible stance for anyone, let alone the leader of the country that led the way to guaranteeing freedom of the press to take. It is absolutely wrong, no matter who does what upon hearing his quote-unquote ideas. And we do not need a body count or a literal smoking gun to call it wrong. And we should not need five grieving families and a community torn apart to know that it's wrong and say so. Maybe there are some people who we can imagine across America who brush off Trump's words as just words. Oh, yeah, he goes after the media. All, all presidents do that. And maybe we imagined if these people saw these five funerals over the course of the next week, they'd rethink how casually they took his words. And maybe if we imagine that these people exist, we could also imagine a situation where this shooter or another is undeniably inspired by Trump's media baiting. And if we had that set of circumstances, I guess we could say, well, then some people would change their minds. I guess then Trump would be exposed to the people he's not already exposed to. But we shouldn't need that set of circumstances. We shouldn't need it. Our fellow citizens who still give Trump an approval when Gallup asks, they shouldn't need it either. And I also have this sense that in our tribal America of today, that it wouldn't even change the minds of these imagined people who slough off cries of fake news and the news being enemy of the people. I just know that Tucker Carlson and his ilk would be able to gin up weeks of coverage and give the uncaring people right now a permission structure to still not care about what the president says about the media. So today there are five dead newspaper employees. A madman killed them. Wouldn't have killed them without a gun. I say that certainly. Wouldn't have killed them without all his rage. And there's another truth, which is that the president's denigration of the free press has dire and awful consequences. And the truth of that statement and the tragedy in Maryland are immutable whether or not they are related. On the show today, oh, don't worry, it gets a lot more fun from this point on. In the spiel, we'll take you inside congressional testimony of the Lisa Page-Peter Strzok affair. Literally, an affair. But first, trans activists came down hard on a writer of an Atlantic cover story who was dealing with the issue of what to do, what psychiatrists and psychologists should do with adolescents who feel gender dysphoria. I talk to, I think, the fairest-minded among those critics as we try to sort out, was this journalism, was this anti-journalism activism, or was it something in between? I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks, it's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built 
with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. As a society, we're accepting, hopefully one day we'll even be celebrating the realization that there are many people whose gender identities are not the ones that are assigned to them at birth. And here's my totally non-controversial stance on the issue. We want as many happy people living happy lives in whatever way makes them happy as there could be in the world. As parents, let's say you have a child and they're in that group of non-gender conforming. You might wonder what to do. So you would certainly, I hope, listen to the child and support the child. You might take your child to a psychiatrist and the psychiatrist you would expect would be able to either them or refer to someone who will help with the journey. It's all interesting, I think. And uh, I know that science writer Jesse Single thinks that it's interesting. The standards of what to do with children in this situation are pretty unclear, but there is a growing at least consensus or practicality of what to do with the many, many more children who are showing up and saying, hey, I don't think of myself as a girl or a boy. The standards of care are changing. So Single is a writer who wrote the cover story in The Atlantic, and what it was about is determining if a child is experiencing dysphoria, which is the term for what I've been talking about, if they're feeling that the gender assigned to them at birth isn't right, then what are the steps, who to talk to, what is the top thinking in the field saying now in terms of hormone blockers and medical interventions? So I read Jesse Single's 12,000-word piece in The Atlantic. I was interested. I got to admit, at times I was uninterested. Like I said, it was 12,000 words. And there were a lot of caveats and cautions and to-be-fairs and the the research isn't totally complete or even close to complete yet. And I knew that it was a fraught subject. Indeed, after it came out, the reaction showed how fraught it was. The trans community, or vocal components thereof, hated the article, tore it apart, but I read their complaints and I couldn't help but still thinking that we had a situation where there was an activist community with good intentions assailing a pretty solid piece of journalism. Two of the most high-profile criticisms were in Slate, there's Nicole Cliff, who writes a column for us. She tweeted disparagingly about Jesse Single. She said he is obsessed with trans women, and she called him creepy, and then she left Twitter. But uh, more, more useful than that is Alex Barish's piece. He wrote in Slate in a piece called Sacred Bodies, a critique of this piece, and it was, I think, the best critique because it says some things I disagree with, but it doesn't make any factual misstatements. So I wanted to talk to Alex about this. Hello, Alex. Thanks for coming into the lion's den here. Thank you. Thank you for having me. What facts did Jesse Single get wrong? So Single's mistake isn't to acknowledge that there are, quote unquote, two sides to this issue. It's treating them as though they're equally common or equally validated culturally and medically. If the landscape were what Single makes it out to be, if society were overwhelmingly pro-trans instead of incredibly hostile and disinterested in our well-being, and if doctors were signing off on surgeries the first time a kid walked into their office, or if detransitioner stories were never told, 
that I think would be a different situation. I think a big problem is what he leaves out. Mm -hmm. So he refers more than once to parents who are being sort of pushed to affirm their child's identity by online communities. He sort of paints the picture of a situation in which all of the online material says you have to affirm your kid or they'll commit suicide. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't acknowledge the other side of that, which is that there are online communities that are these sort of paranoid, conspiracy-driven anti-trans groups. So we don't actually get to any happy, well-adjusted trans people until about 9,000 words into the piece. Yes, but because it is a 10,000, 12,000-word piece, that's one way to look at it. I don't know if you took the people who are well-adjusted trans people and put them up six paragraphs if the journalism somehow becomes better. One way to look at it is 9,000 words into a 12,000-word piece, we get the happy, well-adjusted trans people. The other way to look at it is we did spend a thousand words on a couple of well-adjusted trans people. So I don't think you could tar him with saying he ignores well-adjusted trans people. Well, no, but what I would say is that by the time you get to that point in the article, you will have started to formulate your opinions about this. And the trans people he speaks to are people who were made to wait before they got... Uh, the access to transition-related care, and they were ultimately happy about it. Which, obviously, those trans people exist. These are two of them. But they do not necessarily reflect the trans kids who are denied access to care and who suffered greatly for it. I think it's important to look at who gets to tell their story and who's reduced to a statistic. You know, who do we get to see being human and vulnerable? If you mention trans suicide stats in passing, which he does, but then dismiss the idea that access to care can be the difference between life and death which he does, and we spend all of that time with detransitioners and none at all with the kids who are profoundly damaged by the deferral or denial of their transitions, of whom there are a lot more from mm -hmm. the statistics that we have, who is the reader going to feel for or trust or remember? And the answer can be both, and it should be both. I want people to understand and care about both trans kids and detransitioners, but I think it's noteworthy that we don't see the worst-case scenario for the trans kids and we do see the worst-case scenario for detransitioners. No, we don't see them as the name of a named person, but there are many references to bad outcomes with children who are not allowed to transition. There are many references to a parent who realized her kid was trans and then the gloom lifted. Many references to how horrible a life can be if you're denied this transition. But yes, it's not fleshed out in yeah, a character. I, I would just say that those aren't human stories that we get to see. And I think Julia Serrano put it very well in her sort of tweet storm about this article when she said that his horror stories only go in one direction. I think a couple things may be going on. None of this indicates bad faith to me. But I would say that a lot of the criticism comes down to what is he implying versus what are you or the reader inferring? Or what do you expect the reader to infer? Okay, one thing that I would say, the argument that single sort of comes down to is that the solution to all of the complications that we see, and there are certainly complications, this is a very fraught and difficult issue, but he suggests that we can't have a one-size-fits-all approach. That's true, I agree. But his answer is wait and see in case they grow out of it because... I don't know, I guess he thinks that it's much better for a person to be cis than trans if it's at all possible, even if the probability is that they will turn out to be right, trans. Right. And the assumption, if the assumption were trans is absolutely just as good as cis, there it wouldn't, wouldn't be, be a wait and see. Right. And also the wait and see is exactly the kind of one-size-fits-all approach that he's purporting to be against because he's assuming that for all kids, the best possible way to handle this is 
to take X amount of time and see whether they outgrow it and then do whatever. I don't think that, you know, detransitioners should be pitted against trans people in any way. And I'm not suggesting that telling those stories or acknowledging uncertainties is inherently transphobic or problematic. But I do think that this story has been told over and over and over in different publications. The detransitioning story. Yes. And, and, this, and you this think that people specific... would come away, come away thinking that that is A, as big a problem or as big a phenomenon as the opposite, which is the roadblocks that trans people actually have. Yes, I do think that that's a legitimate risk of this piece because he spends a disproportionate amount of time and grants a disproportionate urgency to the problem of detransitioning. I think a case can be made that we have to say, well, what is the canvas that he's writing on? He he writes these stories that raise interesting and I think very valid issues about where the line is and what is the best thing to do for the children, you know, against the backdrop of not at all being anti-trans, but wanting to have your kid choose the best identity for your kid and your kid's life. Yeah. I mean, my problem is that this is sort of written with the assumption that there aren't overwhelming forces preventing people from seeking this care. It's so, it's sort of whipping up concerns, mostly through anecdotes about people being rushed into decisions that they are too young to make. And the tagline of the article on the cover of this July-August issue is, your child says she's trans, she wants hormones and surgery, she's 13. And So that, that seems scary and That alluring. immediately generates... Uh, concerned what do you do? The clock is Yeah, ticking. and it's, it's, yeah. it's not really there. You know, for prepubescent children, the only thing that's going to happen is social transition, right. if that. If they are diagnosed with gender dysphoria, then it might be recommended that they, you know, are allowed to dress in the way they prefer or pick a name that they prefer or use pronouns that are different from the ones that they currently have and see if that feels right to them. And so what is the... Read the cover line again and tell me what the rational, reasonable answer to that question is, if it's a question. Your child says she's trans. She wants hormones and surgery. She's 13. Hey, Alex, your child says she's <laughs> trans. She wants hormones in and surgery. She's 13. What, what's the best advice there? Go to a gender clinician. Yeah. And if this child has expressed consistent, insistent, persistent identification with a different gender then you can go from there. She might be put on hormone blockers so that you have time to think about this. Right. And that's not controversial. No. And I, he wouldn't disagree with that, though. Yeah. I mean, I think another another thing is that there is this sort of extra textual stuff about single and mm -hmm. his treatment of the trans community and his views about the trans community and also the people who are responding to what he's saying. So, but my soul is for journalism. And to me, this is really solid journalism and... You know, if you're interested in the subject, I think it's a fine treatment of the subject. Perhaps we could argue if the subject deserves treatment, but, you know, I think I think that it's a fine argument to have, but I think it does. Well, do we want to talk about his emails on that list, serve? Yeah. Okay. Because I found those somewhat revealing in terms of the, the biases that he's coming into. Okay, so with. Jezebel published, there is a chat group that he's part of, and mm -hmm. it's like a left lefty journalist chat group. Yeah. And his Twitter, I think he's back on Twitter. It's all about, you know, Trump and immigration and disliking mm -hmm. Trump. So he's just a regular liberal guy. Yeah. 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 But in this series of emails that were published by Jezebel, he speculates about transness as a more acceptable alternative to gayness, which 
simply isn't true. He says, there are definitely stories where it appears Christian moms, it's always Christ- it's always moms who are assigned the task of working out a kid's gender, it seems, appear to react excitedly to the idea that their kid isn't really gay but trans. It's a hard thing to prove, of course, but anecdotally I've heard examples, particularly when it comes to effeminate boys. Okay, so you're worried that that exchange on the message board reveals that he thinks, he might think right now America is more pro-trans than pro-gay. Or he might think that trans is trendy. I think he does have concerns about that. He also dismisses third genders in other cultures as kind of a dumping ground for gender non-conforming men as opposed to a discrete identity unto themselves with rich histories. You know, he talks about how he thinks that trans people are well suited to talk about, say, the humiliation of the bathroom bills. But he doesn't think trans people are more qualified to write about the tricky science stuff going on here than I am. I think that if there were a trans writer, and maybe it's you, who is really well read in on this and The Atlantic knew about that person, you'd definitely want to read that only because the person was an expert. I think you're just saying expertise is expertise. You might disagree with his expertise, but but what does the identity give you in terms of actually wading through the science? Well, that's the thing. I don't think that he has much in the way of expertise. And I think that the suggestion... Well, okay. okay. Then then the problem's an expertise (laughs) problem, not an identity problem. But it's also insulting to people like Julia Serrano, who has a literal PhD in biology and 17 years of postdoctoral experience, and Evan Urquhart from Slate, whose coverage of trans issues is incredibly measured and rigorous. And the last thing is there, there was a lot of play made by Jezebel to the fact that uh, he admits that he uh, goofed on interpreting a famous study about detransitioning. But tell me if I'm wrong. I I really mean this. Mm -hmm. The way he goofed was to the side that would be more favorable to trans activists, right? He goofed by saying there's this study that shows a lot of people detransition, but take that with a big grain of salt. And a lot of trans activists said the same thing, take that with a big grain of salt. But then he went back into the study and said, actually, not that big a grain of salt as I thought, a little grain of salt. Is that, was that the nature of his goof? So that is the nature of one of his mistakes with respect to this and other studies. Well, the Dutch study. The, yes. The, this but- Jezebel article links, I think, three times to him saying he goofed. And I think very much gives the misimpression that he goofed in a way that he was making up statistics that were harmful to the trans community. Right. But Single still hasn't acknowledged the most salient disagreements with his interpretation. He basically, in my experience, only flags up the errors that continue to affirm his own expectations, oh, okay. which I find quite interesting. So, so, so he, he makes performs a big, this yeah. big thing. Oh, I was wrong. It turns out that It turns out I was worse. more right. Yeah, you know, yeah. so okay. as I said before, the myth isn't that desistance exists. It's that it occurs as highly as he purports that it does in that New York Magazine piece and elsewhere. So... Looking at a handful of the studies that have given us this 80% figure, including that study, when directly asked, are you a boy or a girl, more than 90% of those children provided the answer that aligned with their natal sex. So these kids are not trans kids. They were just gender nonconforming kids who, you know, were incorporated into the study. And their answers to... He acknowledged. I I know that because he acknowledges that. He writes that that could be a big problem with the study. They invited too many people in and then said they detransitioned when they were never... yeah. And, you know, those are the those are the strongest predictors for persistence versus desistence. Girls who said they were girls, by and large, continued to present as girls and identify as girls, which is, you know, not shocking. But because they were lumped in with those trans kids and because around 40% of those kids didn't have, didn't meet the diagnostic criteria for gender dysphoria to begin with, 
criteria that have improved since, the reality is that we just don't have a good estimate and it's disingenuous to pretend otherwise. If it weren't done by Jesse Single, if it were done by, I don't know, someone who's trans or cisgender, is there a version of this article that you think should exist as an Atlantic cover piece or the equivalent? And you know, does grapple with the issue but puts it in, you know, a better context? Or if you're grappling with this issue on the cover, you're doing it wrong? I think if it were done very carefully and respectfully and accurately and gave, you know, proportionate weight and urgency to each of the issues at play, then I might be interested in seeing this story. But But, but, but I think you're saying that the proportional article would be something like detransitioning, a tiny thing that rarely happens and isn't really the most important part of our story. The other thing is that the detransitioners he talks about are a very tiny percentage of the detransitioners that exist as well. You know, we're not talking about the detransitioners who do so out of fear or shame and eventually retransition. We're not talking about... The way that dysphoria is medicalized in the first place and how discomfort with your body can be misread in that way, which I think would make for a really interesting article because that gets at a problem that is shared between cis people who are mistakenly identified as trans and trans people who might be kept out of access to medical care. So there are a lot of really interesting, nebulous, thorny stories to be told about the trans experience and gender nonconforming kids, and I just don't think this was one of them. And I wish that someone else had been given that opportunity and those resources to to tell some of those other stories. Alex Barish is a journalist covering science, culture, LGBTQ issues. You could read his writing in Slate and from what I'm told very soon in the Washington Post. Thank you, Alex. Thank you. And now, the spiel. Perhaps you saw the congressional showdown between Rod Rosenstein of the Justice Department and Representative Jim Jordan of Ohio. Jordan has an aggressive, though not always adept way, of peppering people testifying before his committee. You know, he was a champion wrestler. In high school, his record was 150-1. and So we know that yesterday he had at least one example to draw upon. That one loss because he got a little bit owned by Rod Rosenstein. Sure, and I appreciate you saying it isn't personal. Sometimes it feels that way. How do I know, sir? I mean, you interviewed Mr. Strzok. I didn't, uh, so I can't Works for you. Doesn't work for us. Uh, There are 115,000 people who work for me, sir. Mr. Rosenstein, did you threaten staffers on the House Intelligence Committee? Media reports indicate you did. Media reports are mistaken. Sometimes, but this is what they said. Having the nation's number one law enforcement officer threaten to subpoena your calls and emails is downright chilling. Did you threaten to subpoena their calls and emails? No, sir, and there's no way to subpoena phone calls. Well, I mean, I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm reading what the press said. I'm reading well, what the I, press said. I would said. suggest that you not rely on what the press says, sir. Reversal and takedown. Three points. Jewish fellow from Maryland. I've seen Jordan do his shtick before. Makes a long statement, lots of innuendo, phrases like, seems to me, how is it then? How can it be, sir? And no real good question, no answerable question at the end. A a yes or no question that makes the answerer have to kind of buy into his questionable premise. 
Jordan doesn't wear a suit jacket. He just wears his uh, button-down shirt, and he favors yellow ties, and he was wearing one yesterday. And he clearly relishes the theater of the moment. You know, he's a, he's a one-on-one grappler. That's who he is. But to Rosenstein, this was no game. Rosenstein was sharper, he was better, and as we heard, he made a fool of the Ohio congressman. You could call it two different versions of alpha males having a showdown. Though this moment from earlier in the hearings gave me another idea of how to think about this tete-a-tete. Sheila Jackson Lee was questioning the FBI's Christopher Wray. You've had a chance to review the uh, Inspector General's report. I have. Um, and saw the fractions uh, that were cited to the FBI. The, I'm sorry, the, the fractions. fractions. The infractions support. Oh, the infractions, yes, yes. yes. And by fractions, I, of course, meant infractions. I do that a lot. Whoopsie. You know fractions, as in the appendage measuring contest between Jordan and Rosenstein. Jordan tried to be too cute by half and wound up being about two-thirds too short. But you know what the premise of this hearing was, right? It was that Inspector General report, which cleared the FBI of bias in its Clinton investigation, but did reveal embarrassing conversations between two career FBI agents, Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, and they were having an affair. I do not want to exonerate them from sloppiness. They're both G-men or a G-man and a G-woman, and I give them an F or maybe a D-minus as they engage in, you know, government pillow talk via government-issued texts and emails. Dumb. And it does open the door to questions of bias. But I have to say, when you hear, and I don't know how much you've heard of the exact exchange, is it concerning? Did it concern you? Or did you have that odd feeling that I had, which is I actually wound up feeling a little bit better about the top domestic agency charged with my protection. In a different hearing, this was last week, Senator John Kennedy from Louisiana began reading those exchanges in a, in a mocking tone. Tell me if you reacted all like I did. 2-12-2016, Lisa Page. I'm no prude, but I'm really appalled by this, so you don't go looking in case you haven't heard. Trump called him the P-word. The man has no dignity or class. He simply cannot be president. Well, that is, in fact, an accurate read of the man. It does not take a top profiler to come up with that, but I'm glad the FBI sees things so clearly. And how about this? 2-12-16, Peter Strzok. Oh, Trump's abysmal. I keep hoping the charade will end and people will just dump him. The problem then is Rubio will likely lose the cruise. Maybe. 3316, Lisa Page. God, Trump is a loathsome human. Cosign. 3316, Peter Strzok. Oh my God, Trump is an idiot. Same. Day after the election, 11 9 2016, FBI Attorney 2. I am numb. I've been there. FBI Attorney 2 later, same day. I am so stressed about what I could have done differently. Move to Wisconsin? Day after the election, FBI Attorney 2. I just can't imagine the systematic disassembly of the progress we have made over the last eight years. The Affordable Care Act is gone. Who knows if the rhetoric about deporting people, walls, and crap is true. Honestly feel like there's going to be a lot more gun issues, too. Right, right. There are going to be gun issues. That was true. Most of what they were saying was accurate. Also, notice the emphasis that Kennedy put on we. And I think he was implying that the FBI agents by we meant, think about the progress of the Obama administration that's being disassembled. But I heard it as America. Think of the progress this country 
that we are sworn to protect has made. None of that was wrong. What was wrong was that these agents were so careless that we now know about it. So that calls into question their skills as intelligence agents. But nothing I heard in there makes me despair of the values of the FBI. All right, one more clip. I have played this before. We have to make this a meme. 3316, Lisa Page. Also, did you hear Trump made a comment about the size of his, I'm not going to use the word, it rings with wang doodle. Rhymes with wang doodle. Well, that is troubling that the man who would be president goes about bragging about the size of his dang poodle. Let us have six hours more of congressional testimony on that. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader produced the gist 629-515. Can you believe Mike sent me a screenshot of a link rather than just the link? 629. 517. I know he's like a grandpa saying WWW out loud when he talks about the internets. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. If anyone can subpoena a phone call, it's him. The gist. I'm sorry, sir. You seem to be suffering from a cardiac farction. I'm sorry, a farction? Oh, no, that's an infarction. Ha 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 ha. And this has been another amusing scene in medical misdiagnosis malapropism. Umpru deparu duperu, and thanks for listening.